this person, this group of people will never respond to the gospel. There's no point in even reaching out to them and sharing because they're just too far gone. As a group, I can only reject these people. I can't receive them. Now, none of us would like to admit that, right? But sometimes in our sinful thinking, that's certainly an attitude that we can buy into. Whether we're brave enough to admit it or not, that thinking can creep in to our thought life. And as a result, we miss the opportunity to share the gospel. They miss the opportunity to hear it from us. And God's work is not accomplished in that way of thinking. What we find with Cornelius is a situation where, for the early church, the idea of Gentiles, those who were non-Jews, ever coming to faith, ever being included in the household of God, apart from first becoming a Jew and then becoming a follower of Christ, was inconceivable. They couldn't imagine that. We saw last week in the first part of the 10th chapter that when God gave Peter a vision that he was to take clean and unclean animals, kill and eat, the idea that God was opening the way for Peter to come into contact with the Gentiles. You see, the Jewish people despised the Gentiles because they viewed them as ceremonially unclean. But when God showed Peter that, Peter himself resisted initially because that was so ingrained in his thinking that he couldn't imagine God doing something else. But then we come to Acts chapter 10, verse 23. And what we find is that God begins to address and attend to correcting these misconceptions that can divide. By the way, if you're new to us, in your bulletin there's an outline and uh, the words highlighted in yellow on the screens are what go in the blanks. Um, I always enjoy, as I've shared before, finding bulletins where people have tried to guess ahead and then scratch through it and get one of my obscure words. But if you want to go for it, go for it. That's okay. But what we find in this passage is God addressing some of these misconceptions that divide us. And he begins with this misconception. There's a part in man that loves to put up on a pedestal, to adore and even hero worship the messengers of God. And when we find Peter coming on the scene to Cornelius' house, this is exactly what we find. Notice verse 23, right in the middle of it in your NIV Bible. It says this, the next day, after Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. By the way, there were about six of them that went along with Peter. We know that from chapter 11, verse 2, that identifies the number. Uh, what we find, though, is that Cornelius has an interesting response to Peter when he comes on the scene. It says in verse 24, the following day he arrived in Caesarea. 
Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. So this isn't just Cornelius that gets to meet Peter. Cornelius was so looking forward to hearing God's message that he assembled as many as he could. Anyone who was willing to come and hear the message was gathered and he thought of his friends and his family first. And then look at verse 25. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Now, when we look at this from our perspective, we say, well, he was just showing him honor. I know when Paula and I went to India, um, the honor that the people of India showed us when we would go into a, a meeting where we would interact with them. Um, at first, we were freaked out. They actually fell at our feet on their face and wanted to touch our feet. And so we were kind of like, whoa, you know, kind of Peter's response that we'll see here. Hey, we're just people, you know, don't do that. Uh, but that was, was the response. So I can understand what's going on here in this Eastern mindset. There's often the idea that the spokesman from God is very often somewhat related to God in more than just a man and God relationship. Something else we find is this. In Cornelius' background, we know that he was an Italian guard. We know that he was a centurion with an Italian cohort. Something that the Romans believed was that when a person is speaking from God that they have some sort of divinity themselves. So once again, this was a misconception that Peter would have to address so that Cornelius could hear what he had to say and understand who he was. So here is Cornelius, and he's bowing before Peter in this way. And by the way, we see a similar experience by Paul and Barnabas. A little bit later, Paul and Barnabas go to the Lyconians and they begin to share the message. And then in verse 11, it says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done and there was a healing, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. So perhaps part of that is what was going on with Cornelius in this very passage. He had an inaccurate perspective of who Peter was and why he was there Notice they said in verse 12, Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief priest. And when you read that text even a little further, some of the temple priests who offered sacrifices to the Roman gods wanted to bring sacrifice and offer it to Paul and Barnabas. And in each one of those cases, what did the servant of God do? Look at this passage and see what Peter did, verse 26. But Peter made him get up Stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. With clarity, Peter wanted to direct glory to God and not receive glory for himself. And that's what the servant of God should do. It's really about God, never about us. We need to understand that God is worthy of our worship, our praise. And when something is directed toward us, we should direct it 
toward God. And that should be crystal clear. So this adoring of Peter and those who had accompanied him to Caesarea, Peter wanted to set straight. He wanted people to understand that he was there just simply as a human messenger of God. Vital for these people to understand. But then we move into the next part of this passage. And what we find starting in verse 27 is Peter began to address some important racial and religious differences. You know, it was the elephant in the room, so to speak. Before Peter could go further in addressing the gospel, he had to clarify who he was before God, simply a messenger. But secondly, he had to address some of the differences that Jews and Gentiles had experienced throughout their relationship together. So let's look at this. Talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people, and he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. What Peter began to do was establish the history of their relationships together between Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews considered Gentiles to be dogs. They considered them unclean because the Gentiles would eat unclean animals. And the idea was, if I interact with Gentiles, they will have either touched something that is unclean, making them unclean, and then when they touch me, I'll become unclean, or they would offer them food that was unclean, and it would put them in a compromising position. So the mindset was, keep the Gentiles where the Gentiles are, and keep the Jews where the Jews are. We'll interact where we must, pertaining to business, but no social interaction whatsoever. And that had been the history. That had been the mindset. And so Peter had to address it probably as much for himself as he did for those who were listening to what he had to share. And you know, this is so important. Sometimes there are those barriers that we put between us and other people that cause us to, again, reject them, to have nothing to do with them. I grew up in West Virginia. And in the early 70s, when I went to college, okay, do the math, you know, a long time ago, I had a burden for the African-American community in the town that I grew up in. And as I looked around our church, and then I looked at our proximity to the African-American community, I said, wouldn't it be wise for us to go and reach out? Wouldn't it be wise for us to go to the university that was three miles from our church and reach out to college students? So I went to the visitation minister at our church, and I offered up those ideas. When I offered up going to the African-American community, you know what the response was? They have their churches. 
And when I offered up, well then, can't we at least go <coughs> to the, the university and reach out to college students? Their response was, they won't listen to anything we have to say. Leave it alone. Those preconceived ideas stopped them from crossing the lines of difference and reaching out to others. And so Peter was addressing this as he talked to Cornelius and those who had come around him. He says that these differences had existed. And then in verse 29, he says this, So I was sent for, and I came without raising objection. And then he turned to Cornelius and he said, May I ask why you sent for me? He wanted to hear straight from Cornelius where he was. He wanted to listen after identifying some of the potential challenges. And that's where we find Cornelius's recap of what transpired. Now what I find intriguing about Cornelius's response here in verse 30 is this. This is the third time in the 10th chapter that the story of Cornelius's vision is repeated. And when you look in scripture and you see the repetition of things again and again and again, that means that God wants to catch our attention. He wants us to understand. And so what we find here is the account of Cornelius's vision and the, emphasi the emphasis from Cornelius that, that this was God's work that was taking place. He wanted to give the glory to God. And he wanted Peter and all of those who were there to understand, hey, this isn't something that, that I've done. This is something that God has showed me. So let's look at Cornelius's response. Cornelius answered, four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon, and suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me. Now, we know from the earlier accounts this was an angel. And, said Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for him immediately, and it was good of you to come. And here's the bottom line of it. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. That was the bottom line of his message to Peter and the message that he got from God. God was at work in Cornelius' life and in the lives of those who had come to listen. And so they were there ready to hear what God would share with them with a passion and a desire to hear. Have you ever had an evangelistic opportunity like that where somebody comes up to you and says, I want to know about God. I want to have a relationship with Him. I want to experience that. You know, for me, that's only happened a few times in my ministry. And it always blows my mind when it happens. They come and they're so hungry to hear. God has done a work in their life where through seeds that have been planted, ground that has been tilled, 
watering that has been done by others. Finally, they come up and they say, I want to know God. And there's a part of me that sometimes has this suspicion. It can't be this easy. Do they really understand what they're asking for? Do they really understand what I'm talking about? Can it really be this easy? But they hang on every word as you share the gospel. They're shaking their head. And then when you get to the part to where you say, do, do you believe this? Is this something that you are willing to put your faith in, to, to take God at his word? When they respond, yes, this is something that makes sense. It's something I've looked for and longed for. It blows my mind. There's part of me that even says, now wait a minute, are you sure you understood what's been explained? Let me go over it again with you. But for many of them, they'll say, yeah, I understood. That's what I've been looking for. It makes sense. It's something that, that I've been thinking about to some degree, but something that I want. I want to trust Christ. God does that kind of work. It's not my ability to share the gospel that causes that. Have you ever heard some believers say, I saved so-and-so by sharing the gospel with them? They didn't do anything. They're the messenger like Peter. God does the saving. We're privileged to be there. We're privileged to be God's mouthpiece so that he can speak to them. But God does the work. And so that's what Cornelius is recognizing right here. God did the work. God is the one who sent you, Peter, and we are here to listen to what you have to say. Then, we go into the next part of the passage at verse 34, and we see this affirmation about God himself. Peter wanted to clarify a very important truth about God. Look at verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Do you see the important statement that Peter is making here before Cornelius and before the representatives from Caesarea for, who, who, who were of the Jewish background? I think the message was for both of them. The walls that have separated us no longer need separate us because God does not show favoritism. And his point, neither should we. You know, listen, if you want to honor God, to be holy before God, then favoritism goes out the window. What is favoritism? Looking at one person and holding them above another. That's favoritism. The original language means to lift up the face. And the idea was when people would come before the king, the king might go to a whole list of people or a line of people who are bowed over, and the king would go to one and lift up the face of that one and show favor to them. The idea that's being expressed here is God doesn't do that with people. Neither should we. James said this, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. And then look at this statement. 
But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So God looks at favoritism and he finds it an offense because God himself doesn't show favoritism. So Peter's message to the representatives from Joppa, God's message to us is that we need to put aside favoritism and be like God in reaching out to people. And then Peter goes on. When we come to verse 36, Peter begins to talk about the authority of Jesus. This is where he gets to the crux of the gospel. The first part of the passage was Peter setting the framework and the ground rules for communication. But now as we come to verse 36, we find that the word of God is addressed by Peter as he shares with the people the message that God sent him to share. So look at that 36th verse. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. This important message that Peter wanted to communicate is so profound. What Cornelius was looking for is what many have looked for as they've listened to the voice of God. As God works in their heart to draw them to himself. That was Cornelius' passion. He said, I want to be at peace with God. I want to know who he is. And responding to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, in responding to what he had seen of the holiness of God, even through Judaism itself, he came wanting to be at peace with this God. What does it mean to have peace with God? Very often when we think of peace, we think of absence of conflict, right? But peace is so much more than that. To be at peace with God means that you are in right standing with him. You are experiencing the wholeness of what you can have with God. There isn't sin as a barrier between you and God anymore. But there's free and open access to him. You can be what he designed you to be because he provides peace. But notice who that peace comes through. He's saying that this peace comes through Jesus Christ. Peace with God is impossible apart from Christ. Only through Jesus do we experience the peace that we can have with God and therefore have with others. You see, in the context of this passage, the issue was this. The Jews and the Gentiles had been separated. There was no peace between them, and as far as the Gentiles were concerned, there was no peace with God. But in Christ Jesus, all of that changed. Peter addressed, or excuse me, Paul addressed this in the book of Ephesians when he said this. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two. Now here he's talking about Israel and the Gentiles. And he says, thus making what? Peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, 
by which he put to death their hostility. So the peace that Peter is, talk, or Peter is talking about in this passage is peace first with God, but then peace with others as well. So it was a profound moment, and this comes through Christ. And look at how Christ is described in this passage as the Lord of all. Peter wanted his audience to understand who Jesus is. And in order for us to understand this, we have to understand what Lord means to grasp the truth of this text. Lord has many applications as we find it in Scripture. One application is it makes him equivalent or the equal of the Adonai, the Lord of the Old Testament. It's a statement of deity. It is Peter expressing to Cornelius that Jesus was more than just a Jewish rabbi who died. He was more than just a miracle worker. He is God. And he's not just the God of the Jews. He's the God of all men. You see, we have to understand this in the historical context. In the historical context, there would often be the idea that gods would be gods of various nations. You see this throughout the Old Testament, right? The god of the Amorites, the goddess of the Egyptians, the gods of the Romans, the gods of the Jews. What Peter wanted to communicate crystal clear was this idea. Jesus is the God of them all. Jesus has authority over all men. But there's also the idea of unity. If he's the Lord of all men, then all men have access. They need to embrace the truth of who he is. Second application. The idea of authority is obviously behind the term Lord. We have to think of the authority of the Lord in many ways. First of all, we have to think of this. The authority of the Lord means that Jesus has the authority to grant that peace with God contextually. I think that's the idea in this passage. You have to accept, Cornelius, the fact that this Jesus that I'm speaking of grants you peace with God. He alone has the authority to offer that up. And you trust in his authority and his ability to deliver on this so that you can experience forgiveness. That's the idea that's being expressed here by the term Lord. In other passages, it means other things as well. For instance, the idea that he is worthy of us following, worthy of us turning from our sins to him. All of those aspects are connected in the lordship title. But here, the context tells us who he is. He is the Lord of all. He is the Lord who has the authority to provide peace with the Father. We find this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came 
and through whom we live. Again, the idea of his authority in creation. The authority that he has as God himself. Cornelius needed to understand who Jesus is. And so here is Peter explaining it, helping him to grasp who Jesus is. But then he goes on to talk about another aspect of who Jesus is. Not only is he the one who brings peace and Lord of all men, but he is anointed by God's Spirit as the one true Messiah. Look at verses 37 through 38. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all those who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Again, an important statement about who Jesus is. Cornelius needed to not only understand that he is God, that he has authority to forgive sin, authority to make one right with God, but he has to understand that Jesus is the anointed one, the promised one of God that was sent by the Father. And notice his evidence for this position. His evidence for the position is this, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. You see, Jesus evidenced who he was by the miracles that he worked. When we look in the Old Testament, we see miracle after miracle that would be ascribed to the Messiah. Jesus delivered on those miracles. Jesus performed those miracles. And as a result, he identified himself without question as the anointed one of God. Messiah very simply means anointed one. The Greek name Christ, same idea. It's the Greek counterpart of Messiah. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one. So it was one who was specifically sent by God to address man's sin. God confirmed that Jesus was sent by him at Jesus' baptism. Now, as you know, Luke is the same author for the Gospel of Luke, obviously, and the book of Acts. And look at what Luke writes in Luke chapter 3. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. This anointing was confirmed by God. The voice of God from heaven. And later Jesus would say this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, Jesus, being the sent one from God, clearly established by Peter's message. But then Peter also shares this. He acknowledges that Jesus is the crucified and risen Savior. Look at verse 39. We are witnesses of everything he did 
in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So what Peter is saying is this, look, these things that I'm sharing with you are not things that I've heard from other people. I am a direct witness of who Jesus is and what he did. And Cornelius, I am here to tell you this about Jesus. Look at what he says. Verse 39. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. The crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, essential to be communicated in the gospel. And then look at verse 41. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So the bodily resurrection is emphasized by Luke here in the book of Acts. A spirit doesn't eat or drink or fellowship with people. But the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, wrought by the power of God after being crucified by sinful men, communicated crystal clear. And then verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as the judge of the living and the dead. Not only does Peter present Jesus as the crucified and risen Savior, but he also presents him as the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. What a powerful point this is. Again, the authority of Jesus Christ. God gave Jesus authority to judge the living and the dead. Those who are spiritually alive by faith in him pass from judgment. And yet we appear before him at the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of our life. But there are those who are spiritually dead who will face him as the judge who pronounces condemnation because they have not come through the one true son that God provided, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a sobering part of the message. It is Peter not avoiding the position of Jesus as judge. In much of what takes place in evangelism today, People are told to avoid that part of the message. We don't want to ruffle feathers. The Bible is crystal clear that Jesus provides peace, but should we reject that, there are consequences. And the consequence is eternal separation where we will not face Jesus as Savior, but as judge. And we will face condemnation, an eternity separated from God in spiritual and physical torment for eternity. That's the idea. And that's what Peter wanted to communicate to Cornelius. But there's more than this going on. That identification of his authority again points to the idea that he is Messiah. You see, in the book of Daniel, Daniel establishes that the anointed one of God, the Messiah, will have authority over men of every language 
who will worship him. And his dominion will be an everlasting dominion. In other words, his authority will be everlasting authority that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This one who experiences this, the Son of Man. And when you go through the Gospels, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man again and again and again, establishing the authority that he has as the Son of Man based on Daniel's prophecy. So again, this clear picture of who Jesus is, Cornelius needed to grasp this. The final point I would like to consider in Peter's message is we access God's offer of salvation through simple faith. When we come to verse 44, 43, excuse me, it says this, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. When we see through his name, again, it's the idea of Christ's authority. Because of who he is, Lord, he is able to provide what we need, forgiveness and salvation. So when we come to God to receive forgiveness, Jesus has the authority to provide that forgiveness. And we experience acceptance into God's family by responding in faith to what Jesus provides. Believing on Christ means we trust him. We take him at his word. We accept what the scripture says about him and what he has said about himself, that I have the authority to forgive your sin. Count on me, not on your works, not on your abilities, not on anything else. Count on me and what I provide. And you have forgiveness for your sin. That's the message to Cornelius. And it was expressed with clarity. And then look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. To me, this is one of the neatest passages of Scripture in evangelism. They did not have to have a protracted session of invitation. They did not have to offer even a sinner's prayer. Cornelius believed in his heart what was being said, and in that moment of belief, the Holy Spirit entered his heart. He became a new person in Christ. To me, the beauty of that experience, the wonder of God's work, the power of the gospel that comes totally from God, not from our ability to share, not from anything else, it comes from God. When we believe the truth of that gospel, we're transformed. I like what Paul says to the Ephesians. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now look at this. Having believed 
you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Do you get that? Belief ushers in the assurance that God holds us by the deposit of the Spirit of God that he sends into our lives. What a rich promise this is. What a tremendous blessing this is to those who believe the knowledge that we are sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This happened to Cornelius. And look at that 44th verse. The Holy Spirit came on all those who heard the message. There was transformation. There was change. And then look at the proof of the Spirit. What we have here is God making a huge shift in the way things have been done. He's shifting from exclusivity with Israel to opening the way of salvation for Jews and Gentiles. But here's the thing. How do you know in this first century setting when you have skeptics who are saying Gentiles must first become Jews in order to become Christians, how can you prove to this Jewish audience that they indeed are saved. We've all heard people say, I'm saved, and not a thing in their life represents that profession. Not a thing. We all look at them and say, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't, I don't think you understand what that whole word means. A little confusing. For this Jewish audience, they might have heard the Gentiles say, yes, we receive Christ, but they would have said, okay, great, now first become a Jew, then become a Christian. But God did something. God gave proof of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, them being baptized into the body of Christ, and that was through the outworking of speaking in tongues. Now, this is not something that happens for everybody who believes. There are monumental things going on here, and there needed to be monumental proof. So when Cornelius spoke in tongues, it was something that demonstrated to the Jews that, hey, what we experienced at Pentecost, when the Spirit came on us, Cornelius has now experienced. And so it's God's stamp of approval, visibly, that things have changed. And that's what happened. I love the next part of this passage. When you go on in the text, it says in verse 45 that the Jewish believers were astonished that the Gentiles would be saved. Verse 45, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. The evidence was irrefutable. They had to accept the change that God had made because the proof was right before their eyes. And by the way, these witnesses would become significant as this event is relayed again in defense that Gentiles can become believers. This evidence that was right before them was so profound that Peter had a response. The act of baptism had to be conferred on those who are part of God's church. Now, notice 
We can read this just in passing in verse 47. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Now we look at that and say, okay, you know, end of the story, conclusion, good. But I want you to think about the ramifications of what's taking place. Baptism is an outward rite that identifies us with a community of believers. So by Peter saying, Cornelius and all of those who have believed can now be baptized, it was a profound statement that he was saying, these people are of one church, the community of believers, and their baptism demonstrates God's acceptance of them into the church, and it demonstrates our acceptance of them as well. There is one faith, one Lord, one baptism. It's a beautiful statement of acceptance that Peter not only offered it, but commanded that they be baptized so that their identification with the church could be without question. This morning, we've seen that God often does the unexpected, doesn't he? Nobody before Acts chapter 10 could have imagined God changing things up like this. So often what happens in our theology is this. We form a theology that puts God in the box and we say God must function according to my system. But what we need to understand is this. God isn't confined to a box. God at times does the unexpected because he's God and he's free to do so. Now, it's important to have theologies. It's important to study who God is and to have a systematic way of orienting yourself to the revelation that he has. But we need to be careful to not put God in neat little pigeonholes so that everything about God can be explained by my system because there are those things that go outside our system. Peter had to be open to what God showed him. And the result, you and I are sitting here this morning, right? For many of us who do not have Jewish heritage. So our being here today is because of Acts chapter 10 and what God started with Cornelius. Let me encourage you, give glory and thanks to God for the unfolding of his purpose and his plan. Let me also give you this encouragement. If you have not yet recognized Jesus as the one who has authority as Lord to forgive your sins, to offer you a relationship with the Father, to change you and make you a new person in him, if you haven't come to that place, may I encourage you this morning to open your heart what Jesus can do in you and to put your faith, your trust in him as your savior. That is something that you alone can do with God. It's something that you and God have to come to terms with by you taking God at his word. So let me encourage you this morning.
If you have not yet done that, understand the importance of coming to that place to where you trust and to where you receive what Jesus so freely offers. Let's pray.